Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And this time, it gives me great pleasure to welcome a new guest to the podcast, but certainly not a new face or a new voice to the South African financial market community. His name is Chris Gilmore. He is well known to South Africans in the financial market space, been on Business Day TV once uh, upon a time where we worked uh, we, we worked a bit together there, Chris, at one stage. Um, and you subsequently moved. You're no longer in South Africa. You are now based up in Scotland. Welcome to Talking with Traders, Chris. Garth, good evening. Good, good to be here. Yes, as you say, we go back a long, long way. I think if, if I'm uh, not mistaken, uh, we went back to the days when Lindsay Williams was um, was chairing that whole um, Business Day Television. What was it called? Yes, um, yeah, Business yeah, Day TV, Business and then Day it TV. was it, right. it was yeah. Summer TV back in the day right. when that's when Lindsay right. was still there. Yeah, so that's a long time ago, and it was great. And always, be, it's always great for a guy like myself who, well, I've been in the market now twenty years, so not not uh, a short amount of time, but. You know, I always appreciate being able to chat to guys like yourself who are veterans of the industry. Um, I've had David Shapiro on the podcast recently talking about his 50-year anniversary on the JSE, amongst others. So it always gives me great pleasure, and it's a great honor to be able to speak to guys like yourself who've got such a long history in the JSE and plenty of stories to tell, which I'm sure we'll get into during this podcast. But as a bit of background, Chris, can you give us a little bit of uh, your history, how you got involved in markets? And you know, in, in five minutes, I guess, what path your career has followed over the years? Okay. Um, okay. So if I go back, um, let's see. When I was at university, I, I did my first degree was in chemistry of all things. And, um, you know, that doesn't really have much to do with um, uh analysis of companies, or, or so you might think. Mm. So um, I, I left, uh, I, I finished that, my, my, my honours degree in chemistry, and I thought, good grief, what am I going to do now? And I thought, well, you know, I should actually do some sort of kind of business degree. So I went and did a, a, a postgrad in uh, what I think called financial studies, both at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. And um, then during that time, uh, I, I looked around and thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? Because I've become a bit of a professional student by this time, you see. Mm -hmm. So um, I looked around and I saw a whole bunch of stuff, uh, but nothing really grabbed my attention. 
So I kind of drifted into industry. I worked for Scottish Newcastle Breweries when I left university as a management trainee and uh, got um, introduced to a whole uh, a bunch of, of different uh, aspects of the brewing side, but mainly on the financials. And after a few years of that, I thought, here, listen, I'm really not cut out for this type of thing. And I really fancied getting into markets and, um, and investment analysis. So my only real options available were uh, to go to London because Edinburgh, although it's the second biggest uh, financial centre in, in um, the UK after London, and, and still ranks up right up there, mm. it's, it's, it's a very cliquey sort of place. And if you're not part of the um, establishment, then you really are an outsider. So it was either go to London or, or go overseas. And so I wrote a few letters off to um, some people on the, the JSE. This is, this is before the days of the internet, you understand. Right. And uh, so I was literally writing letters to companies like uh, Martin and Company and Ivor Jones, Roy and Company, Borkums and Max Pollock and Fremantle. And they all were very polite and they replied. So I, I, uh, back in May of 1982, I, I flew out and uh, saw a few people. And including a chappie called Eric Levine, he was the uh, head of research at uh, Max Pollock and Fremantle in the old JSE in Diagonal Street. Mm. And he said, look, um, he said, uh, can you write? He said, I said, yeah, sure. And he said, right, go away and write a, a story on De Beers. Go and write a report on De Beers. I thought, uh-huh, that could be interesting. <laughs> and um, so coming across on the plane, I'd seen this... Um, this uh, story on, on De Beers in the, the Economist magazine. So that was a little bit fortuitous. So that I kind of used that as a kind of uh, base. And then he said, you can come and use our library. And, you know, the library in those days was full of cuttings and newspaper cuttings and assiduously looked after by the librarian, a guy called Willie Morolo. He really was fantastic. And he was very helpful. So um, um, I did that. And then I went down to Cape Town for about a week and came back up again, went into their library and did some more work put a report together, brought it back to Eric. And he said, um, yeah, he said, um, when can you start? I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I wasn't quite expecting that. I said, look, um, I need to, I'll need you guys to help me try and get um, some sort of temporary residence and stuff like that in South Africa. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll do all that. You, you get out as soon as you possibly can. And that was, that was in May. And I came back in August. And I stayed with my cousin uh, out there in the, the West Rand, out in the Velt of Freedom Park. <laughs> and I commuted in every day on the bus and um, until I got a car. Uh, that was after a, a, a couple of weeks. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I started doing things called company briefs. And that was basically looking at the Rand Daily Mail, as it was in those days, getting the company's uh, company reports coming out the, because the companies in those days were obliged and, and they were still obliged to, to, uh, to advertise their uh, results up until very, very recently. Yeah. And I, I would get hold of them uh, and put something out literally that day. Now, when I say put it out, I mean, it literally had to go to the printer and I had to go and come back and we had to make sure everything was okay and we chucked it out. You know, we were probably looking at a two to three day turnaround time. Not like today when you just whack it out on the internet. You know? Right, yes. So we were putting these things out now, mainly for private client consumption, although um, some of the institutions were getting them as well. And these were companies, I didn't do any management interviews, absolutely nothing. It was just churn them and burn them, you know, get them out. Right. And um, 
so not very satisfying. And then after about oh, a year or so, Eric uh, said to me, listen, let's, let's, let's start doing some more chunky stuff. He said, let's start getting into the, um, the retailers and SAB. I said, great, fantastic. And we started doing some big reports, Tongard, Hewlett, uh, and uh, a few other companies. And we started putting out big, fat reports. And these things started, you know, they took a lot of time to put out because they had to go to the printers. And they had, we had an in-house printer in those days. Right. And, and this was really good. So I stayed at Pollux for about a couple of years. And then I made a very big mistake. I went to a place called Frankel's. And um, that lasted about 14 months. And um, then after that, I moved to a crowd called Anderson, Wilson & Partners, which is now, I think, Standard Equities or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I stayed there for a few years. That was a great place. And that was a very mining-oriented company. And um, so I was there for quite a few years. And then, funnily enough, I went back to Pollock. Um, so and became a partner there for, for, for what that meant. And, um, and then <laughs> Pollock's got taken out by Frankel's. And, uh, you know, this was just, it, it was the most ridiculous thing. You know, it was, it was just crazy. I just couldn't escape from Frankel's. Right. And um, so this, this went on for a year or so. And then I was approached by a guy called the Yanni Mouton uh, at Sinakil Mouton in Katsov. And he said to me, then you asked for a conspiration scheme. And I said, no, not really. And I said, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll sort that out for you, pal. So he said, listen, we'd like you to come and join us and, um, and come and write industrial research for us. I said, okay, fine. And um, so we had a chat and uh, I, I had a pair of lead handcuffs on at, uh, at, at Frankel's. You know, I had to give him six months notice and he could only do it twice a year. Oh, it was terrible. Anyway, I eventually managed to get my way out of there and got to, um, to SMK. And uh, they sent me to Rao, Rand Afrikaans Universiteit, to learn Afrikaans. Right. Uh, because, um, you know, it, it was uh, a heavily Afrikaans place. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, it was the most wonderful place. It was fantastic. I mean, this was the most incredible uh, operation. I mean, both on the equities and the guilt side. They, they really were incredibly well connected and they were very professional outfit. And I love being there, as I say. The Afrikaans bit was a bit tricky, and uh, but after after a row, I, I learned a bit, and I used to go to these partners' meetings, and uh, there was no quarter given whatsoever. The whole thing was in Afrikaans, no English whatsoever. So that was a bit. I, I used to say to Hilton Ashton, one of my co-partners, right? Listen, Hilton, just tell me what's going on here, pal, because uh, there are some bits that I don't follow because they speak awfully quickly from time to time. Yeah. Anyway, so he helped me out there, and Johnny McCreedus was there, and a few other. Um, non-Afrikaans speakers and uh, so that kind of helped it anyway so I left there in 94 I think it was and went to um, Davis Borkham Hare mm-hmm. which then became Smith Borkham Hare which became Merrill Lynch and oh, that was wonderful I thoroughly enjoyed that as well saw the world went and did a lot of traveling to the states and presenting in Europe and the UK and, and America and it was great and um you know, after that, I went across to the buy side um, and I joined a commercial union and investment management down in Cape Town under the late, uh, what was his name now? God, I've forgotten his name now. Um, by Joe Scotsman. Um, no idea. Bad. It'll, it'll come to me in a moment. <laughs> anyway, and uh, so I went down to Cape Town for a while and um, that was okay, but then they got bought out by um, Metropolitan and Metropolitan didn't want the, the top management. So they paid me a lot of money to go away. And uh, 
I went through a bunch of bucket shops and eventually came back to, um, to Johannesburg, joined the Financial Mail, and I was there for a few years. And that was great. I mean, they, they taught me how to write properly. Mm. And because uh, as an analyst, you know, you kind of get uh, a bit carried away from time to time. You're, you're writing an awful lot, but it's not necessarily um, uh, good writing. And uh, believe it or not, um, Madame Caroline Sauber, who was the editor, she actually she brought my writing on brilliantly. And the late Michael Coulson, um, he was he was also fantastic. The, a lot of people, you know, I got a lot of a lot of time and, and respect for uh, out there. So That's, that lasted a while. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm just listening to this. I mean, this is fascinating. This is stuff I didn't know about you, Chris. I mean, I, I've always sort of known you as from financial mail days, and perhaps that's just because that's as far back as my career goes, you know, financial mail, business day, TV, et cetera. I had no idea about all of this previous history, which is really fascinating. Um, <laughs> the part that's interesting me the most is the part about Yanni Moton and SMK. I mean, obviously, you'll know the story, and most listeners to this podcast will know the story of Yanni Moton and the book that he wrote wrote called and then they fired me and of course then he went on after being fired from his own firm smk he went on to form psg which of course everybody knows psg which is born out of that as capitec and zeta and a whole bunch of other companies i mean he's created a massive empire yep uh, I guess the question asked is, were you ever enticed to go with him to PSG? Because, oh, clearly not, because that didn't, didn't form a part of your career. But uh, <laughs> that could have been no. an interesting move. Any regrets there? Yeah, that, it's interesting you, you, you asked that, Garth, because, look, I actually left in 94, just before the Palace coup. Now, the Palace coup resulted, and I'm, I'm probably, I might be giving you a little bit of um, uh, stuff that isn't in the book, mm. but... Um, there was a guy called Francois Haus uh, there at the time. Yeah, and he was the, he was the, like um, the, the 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 wunderkind. Um, he was the the banking analyst and a really really smart guy. Um, and he he left and went to join UBS, I think it was. And mm. that was the lo- that was the last straw because you know he was also one of the guys he'd, he'd gone to Stellenbosch and, and that that made a big difference in SMK terms. If you went to Stellenbosch, you know you're one of the mana. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call them. Uh, Stellenbosch Mafia, but um, <laughs> if you if you went to Stellenbosch, it was it was very very helpful for your career. So that was that was the last straw. So I'd already left by that time. I'd gone to um, to to, to Borkums, and so I watched this uh, from from afar. And then when when Yanni left, when he, and it was the ne- it, it had to happen, I think, because there was a a lot of resentment uh, when when Francois left, particularly because I think a lot of people felt that. It was falling apart uh, at that time, right. and um, so you know, with with, uh, with Yanni gone, and I think I think after that, SMK uh, got absorbed into, God, BOE wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, could yeah. they did because I mean I worked at BOE and I know some of my colleagues were ex SMK people, so that's right, it got bought bought yeah. out and absorbed into BOE. But it, but it's interesting; it's gone full circle there because Francois House, you know, runs now PSG Consult. And uh, so he's back in the fold with Yanni. He's been yeah. there for quite a few years now. And, and he's been very successful with it. Very bright guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very bright and very successful. PSG is, is, is extremely successful business right across the board. But now, Chris, if we fast forward, I mean, I know you talked about um, Financial Mail. I think I cut you off, actually, when you're continuing, because I think after Financial Mail, you were at ABSA. Am I right? Yes, there was a guy called Alan Miller. And... Um, 
Alan had constructed this thing called ABSA Financial um, Service, I think it was called, AFS. And um, he, he got hold of me and asked me if I'd like to come and join, because he was looking for somebody that could write and somebody could actually raise the profile of this operation that he'd established there. Mm. And um, Alan was a good guy, and I got on well with him and um, went there. And uh, no, I had a good time. Jeez, I, I've got to say that because I, I lasted there nine years and nine months, <laughs> ju- just short of the 10 years. And really? um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Started off in Park Down, ended up in Santon. And, you know, ABSA changed a lot. Um, yeah. In terms of its ownership, for example, it went to Barclays. I mean, that was a complete and utter unmitigated disaster. That yeah, it always seemed um, a bit of a strange marriage that. And now, of yeah, course, they're yeah. starting to unwind it. The yeah, recent exactly. sale, uh, yeah. uh, Barclays sold a whole bunch of well, half their stake in Epsilon last week. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. So, um, you know, they've now got a new CEO there, a guy called Ari Reutenbach, and I think he'll be fantastic. Uh, that's what they've needed, that kind of um, aggressive um uh, leadership for a long, long time. It's been that's what's been lacking. So I think, I think now uh, ABSA will actually do very well. Well, I, I, I certainly hope they will because um, you know I've, I've watched Ari from again from afar, and I think he'll be very, very good. But look, uh, on balance, I actually quite enjoyed my time at ABSA. Yeah, no, good, good to hear. Now you said to me uh, off, off air that you retired from ABSA in 2017, and of course now you find yourself back in Scotland, where you where you come from. I'm still a wry smile on my face here that you're a, a Scotsman that can speak Afrikaans. I think there's there can't be too many of those around. I'd love to have a conversation with you in Afrikaans, but I'd have to probably have a couple of whiskeys or something to be able to get as tuatalach as you. My Afrikaans has never been great other than what we learned at school. But what made you go back to Scotland, Chris? Uh, A number of things. Um, Look, I think that was always in the back of my mind that I was going to come back anyway at some point in time. Um, But my wife, who's from Durban, um, she... She didn't fancy uh, staying in South Africa for much longer. I think the, the crime and the abject poverty, you know, that was facing her every single day mm-hmm. uh, was, was, was just a bit too much. And um, so, um, you know, we made a decision that uh, we were going to start gradually moving back. Now, it, it wasn't so easy. Um, you know, back in the old days, if you were married to a, to a Brit, you could just um, literally get on a plane, go back, and uh, you would get uh, citizenship pretty easily. Not anymore, and, mm-hmm. for, and not for quite some time now. So she had to go through a whole uh, series of things. She had to live in the UK for three years, nine months of which you were allowed to, to, to be on holiday as such. Mm-hmm. And so she took three dogs across there and still had quarantine in those days, six months quarantine. God, what a hassle that was. And um, so... Um, no, look, I'll, I won't bore you with all the details, but um, so she got there and she got her citizenship. And I, I kept um, pretty much commuting between South Africa and, um, and the UK. And, um, you know, I, I had my house in the market and it took about three and a half years to sell it, which I eventually, eventually did for peanuts. Yeah. And there's a housing market completely dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I don't think much has changed in the, in the, um, in the interim. Um, but look, you know, we were just discussing this the other day. Um, although standard of living in South Africa, depending on where you live, is still very, very high. Yeah. There's no getting away from it. 
quality of life, I think, has deteriorated markedly um, to the point where you've got simple things like not being able to post a letter uh, in the, the, the knowledge that it will reach the other side without it being tampered with. And, you know, that might not seem like a big deal in this era of, um, of emails and stuff like that, but it actually is. Uh, if you want to get things like, let's say, a driver's license sent through the post, can't do it anymore. You haven't mm. been able to do it for years and years and years. So yeah. little, little things like that. Um, and, and there's plenty of them. So I think uh, it, it becomes a cumulative thing. I think eventually it just wells up inside you. And then one day you say, ah, you know what? Enough is enough is enough. Or chanuch is enough is chanuch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you say, cheers, I'm out of here. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, look, I mean, obviously, I've I've also um, voted with my feet, and I've been in the UK for two and a half years now. So, but let's not get into that. Let's not make this negative. Um, no, no. You've been in the markets for a long time. You've seen lots of cycles, uh, and and when I said, by the way, a moment ago that you retired from apps, I mean, you actually you from chatting to you off air, you're not really retired. You're still very active and still very busy. Just give us quickly in a minute what you're doing currently. And then I want to talk to you about market cycles and where you think we are right now. Just tell us a little bit about the various things that you're involved in at the moment, please, Chris. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Okay, so I write institutional research for Salmore. Um, It's a company I established about a year ago. Um, I also write uh, a weekly column for the business day. I write for INS. Um, I also write um, uh, more private client-oriented research for INS, you know, the, the communications company, which yes. we've had a long, long um, association for a long, long time. Good crowd. Alvin Atkinson's company. Very yeah. good, great company. Yeah. And um, I do a bit of other consulting here and there. And uh, so I probably keep busier now than I did when I was at ABSA. And I still do a lot of TV and radio, not as much as I did when I was with ABSA. But um, so I still do TV, radio um, and, and chat away um, doing th- th- this type of thing, for example. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on this podcast with me. But let's get away from that a bit and talk a little bit about what where we are currently in markets. Um, as I said, you've been around a long time. You've given us a, a, a nice history of your career, which spans back a couple of decades. You've seen many market cycles in your time, bull market cycles, bear market cycles. We're in an interesting space right now in terms of a market cycle. I mean, where are you sitting on this at the at the moment? In my perspective, it's sort of I, I more and more feel like we're entering into a new bear market stage uh, from a global perspective. But I, I don't know whether you'd agree with that or disagree. Where are you seeing the cycles at the moment? Garth, I, I tend to agree with you, um, uh, but I've been saying that for quite a while, you know, and uh, as they say in the, the classics, a, a broken clock is, is right twice a day. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think if you look at the, the basic background fundamentals, they've been extremely poor for a long, long time. Now, what I mean by that is that if you look at the 
the biggest economy on earth, the U.S. economy, it's in serious, serious trouble mm. uh, and has been for a long, long time in terms of its, 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 um, its debt situation. Um, and they're, they're just kicking the can down the road uh, and they keep on doing that. Um, and at some point in time, the chickens do have to come home to roost. Yeah. Uh, and, when, and when that happens, you know, there'll be all sorts of asset classes that will do well out of it. I think gold will probably do quite well out of it. Um, I'm not a crypto fan, but crypto will probably do quite well out of it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that everything is going to be completely negative if and when the, um, the chickens do come home to roost, metaphorically speaking, in yeah. the US. Um, so over and above that, you know, if you look at the, the world's second biggest economy, the Chinese economy, it's got worse demographics than Japan. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to see the population of China halving by the year 2050. Um, there was a, a study done by a guy called Sir Arthur Lewis back in the 19th century, and he postulated a thing called the Lewis Turning Point. And a lot of academics, including at the, um, the World Bank, have looked at uh, China specifically with, with regard to the Lewis Turning Point over the years. And um, I mean, in, in 2013, uh, an article came out of the World Bank and said, by, by between the years 2020 and 2025, Chinese economic growth will slump from the current 6 7%, which is where it was in those days, mm. to around about between 1% and 2%. And look, the Chinese are feverishly trying to keep the, um, the, the, their growth up, but they're, they're not really succeeding. And one of the reasons is you've got a, an aging economy. I've just mentioned that. Mm. Um, that, older growing, that growing older economy in, in China doesn't trust the state to look after them. Yeah. And as a result, all you have to do is just pull out a graph of consumer spending as a percentage of GDP in China. It's been declining for decades. Mm. The, the Chinese do not want to spend mm. when it comes to, to, to the consumption. So they're going to have to rely on what they've always been very, very good at in the past, i.e. Uh, producing relatively cheap um, consumer goods for the rest of the world to buy. But hey, there's one big problem. Globalization, as we know it, is rapidly coming to an end. And if you want to, I can send you a paper I wrote about 10 days ago on, on this very subject. Uh, globalization has been going on for the past couple of hundred years, but picked up a lot of speed after the end of the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, but now we're, we're, we're retrogressing in a big way. And three things have, have conspired to, to, to make that retrogress even further. The Trump trade wars, you go back a few years ago with uh, Donald Trump and Robert Lighthizer, uh, his trade secretary. Then, of course, you had the pandemic. Uh, and that, although we're largely through it, in my opinion, yeah. we're still seeing the impact of it in terms of disrupted supply chains. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the war in Ukraine. Mm. And the war in Ukraine is exposing the free world's dependence on autocracies, uh, notably with regard to Russia. Um, so the, the free world is going to have to take a stand at some point in time. You know, yeah. what's, what's going to happen with Ukraine? I don't know. It's anyone's guess. But, um, you know, it's, it's a situation that isn't going to be resolved quickly. This is going to fester for quite some time. So I think we're going to go back to a high inflation situation. Not, not, not um, hyperinflation, but higher than, than would be liked. And we're going to have a relatively low economic growth. And it's not good for markets. So to come back to your point, uh, Garth, I would argue that um, I think you're, you're, you're on the money. You're spot on it. But, you know, 
Markets have this. What is that expression? Markets can stay. Yeah, um, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Stay solvent, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is true. That is true. But yeah, certainly interesting. I mean, interesting perspectives that you painted there, and uh, I, I think yeah. I mean, obviously, I agree. You know, high inflation, low growth, um, the poor demographics that you mentioned in China, which um, part of that borne out by the the one child policy in in China, of course. Um, that's why their demographics are so so poor, and why the yeah. Chinese population is is in states of decline. So yeah, it is all a bit worrying. It is all a bit worrying. Um, so on that note, you know, I, I want to talk to you about investing styles and what you would suggest to people at different stages of their investing career. Now, l- let's start first of all with somebody younger. Okay, someone who's maybe. 20s, early 20s, middle 20s, coming out of university, got their first job and starting to make a bit of money, wants to invest some money. What kind of advice do you give to that person? And then after that, I want to talk to you about someone at a later stage in life, um, how you would approach it from their perspective. But let's start with the younger person, first of all. Okay. The the first one is is quite easy. Uh, Should I say, relatively speaking, relative to to, to the other life stage, it's quite easy in the sense that you say to them, it's very simple. You take all the money that you're you're earning and where you possibly can, you invest it. Mm. And um, I think Albert Einstein referred to as uh, compound interest as being the the fourth wonder of the world. You know, it's, it's quite incredible. The earlier you start, the more you're going to make. And I mean, it can be shown quite, quite conclusively that if you start at the age of 20, putting away, I don't know, a thousand a month, just for the sake of argument, uh, and then stop at the age of 30. And then somebody else at the age of 30 starts doing exactly what you're doing. He never catches up. He mm. never, ever catches up because that 10-year gap is just so critically important. Yeah. So you, you come back to that. It's, it's, it's so incredible. And whether, that's putting, whether it's saving, whether it's real investment, doesn't actually matter. It's getting that discipline in place and, and sticking to it. And it's very, the, the, the difficult part is at that age, in your late teens, early 20s, you know, you maybe come out of university or whatever, um, you're, you're seduced by advertising. You know, you want to go and buy stuff. You want to go and buy um, a lot of ephemeral products. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can, if you can, uh, if, if you could, can, can, can stop the urge to do that, uh, and actually say, no, no, this, this is it. I'm putting this away, not just for a rainy day, but you're putting it away for investment purposes. Mm. And there will, and we, we just discussed it, Garth. I mean, there will be many, many times where you'll get disillusioned because markets will look bleak for, for months, maybe years. But that's the time to buy even more. Yeah. You know, because at some, it, it, can, it can be shown uh, empirically that over uh, the, long, the long term, you will do well if you adhere to that kind of discipline. So for the younger generation, it's easy. The only difficulty is persuading them. Yeah. Um, when you say invested, though, like I just want to get a little bit more detail on that um, because that can mean many different things. And, of yeah. course, some investments don't come to fruition. They don't pay off in the end. So yeah, how do we achieve investing success for the long term if you're a young person? I mean, I'm thinking indices, ETFs. Something yep. like that, or, yep. or would you be Absolutely. more more uh, stock specific? Well, you see, it, it uh, again, it depends on the, the 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 makeup of the the person involved. So, if you've got a how can I put it, a trading frame of mind, 
then you say, okay, look, let's maybe put two thirds into an ETF, keep it, keep it, keep it nice, keep it clean. And then the one third, you go and you actually trade and you go and you look and you, you, you take advice uh, from what you hear on the TV and radio and stuff like that. Mm. And you do your homework. Uh, with that one third, you've got to take the view that you are prepared to lose absolutely everything. Mm. Um, that, um, you know, this is money that is something that um, this is not rainy day money. This is something that uh, can be gone in the, in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, and you must accept that, you know. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, you know, you must realize that it's a different type of environment. Yeah. So the... The longer term rainy day type stuff, the stuff that you want to sleep easy with, um, that is, you know, ETFs, that is, um, that's the, that's the boring stuff. But you know what? It's the stuff that uh, over the longer term, coming back to what I talked about in the, the compound interest side of things, will, will give you the, be- the big returns over the long, long period of time. The, the trading side of things might very well work for you in, very, very well indeed. And if they if they follow your programs, I mean, I'm sure they'll do even better, you know. So if 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 you if you can get a, a good style and you can find people that um, you've got a lot of faith in, and that they've got a good track record, then you know it's it's riskier. But you know, if you're prepared to take the risk and you're prepared to understand that you can lose that, then you know, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. And I must say, I mean, pleased to be able to say I was given that sort of advice as a youngster myself and followed it and it definitely did pay off. It's, you know, it's afforded me a comfortable life uh, now in the UK. So it, it, it definitely is good advice. You start young, invest, delay gratification, don't buy fancy cars and silly things that you don't really need when you're young, invest for the future. You'll be, you'll thank your younger self when you're older, but now let's talk about a young, an older person. And let's assume that this older person now actually has been smart and has invested over the years and has a bit of a, you know, decent nest egg, but they're now in their fifties, let's say. So someone a yep. little younger yep. than yourself, but uh, at a more senior stage of life, and I'm thinking specifically in the context of how we positioned right now, actually, in terms of the global market and the cycles and the possibility, as we said, that you know we're we're staring down some potentially quite bumpy times in equity markets in the next couple of years. How do you advise someone in that sort of age group to to invest those hard earned savings now? Uh, that's why I said that's the really difficult uh, uh, person, uh, Garth, mm. because on the one hand, they've got lots and lots and lots of spare cash because uh, invariably the kids have left home. Um, they've now got so much spare money. You know, the, 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 the kids have gone and they're, they're not seduced by ephemeral products anymore. And, um, you know, the only thing they really spend money on is things like foreign holidays and stuff like that. And um, so as a result, they've got the cash. But the problem is, where on earth do you put it? And again, coming back to your point, at this point in time, with very, very low interest rates all around the world, admittedly, that is changing. But yeah. it's, still, it's still a long way off where, where it was even a few years ago. Um, so what do you do? I mean, do you put it into really, really very, very low interest rate um, jurisdictions? Um, not really, because that's going to give you, when it comes to, if you look at it, inflation after paying, paying your taxes, you're going to come up with a negative return. Mm. So you're probably still going to have to look 
at the market. And um, the, the equity market specifically. That, exactly, equity market. And I remember writing a story on, on this very thing, thing uh, a few years ago, and a guy called Gerald Sadler. And you may have heard of, heard of Gerald Sadler. He's a very hail fellow, well met in the Johannesburg community. And he said to me, you know, things have changed, you know, and this is even a few years ago. Uh, interest rates weren't, weren't so high. And he said, even older people are starting to get a bit more, for want of a better expression, more daring. They're, they're taking more of a risk, if you like, and, when, and they don't have to, but they have the spare cash. Look, uh, I'm talking about people who have got the wherewithal to do it. Obviously, if you haven't got the wherewithal, this, 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 this isn't going to, to really help at all. If you haven't got if you haven't got the money to do it, you, you, what, what I'm suggesting is you, you can't really do it. But if you have got the wherewithal to do it, if you've got this kind of normal uh, distribution, basically, and you've got a lot of spare cash, then yes, I think you can still uh, take more of a, um, uh, a view whereby you put money back into, into the equity market. Because the equity markets, as, as risky as they may be, and I think we're of the same mind here, Garth, that they may be. On the we're already looking at the S and P is and it's in correction territory. Mm. Um, I think our market's in correction territory, if I'm not mistaken, um, or if it's not, it's pretty close to it. You know, yeah, you, it you, is you, now. You, it's had a, it had a nasty week. Yeah. So um, you know, is this a, a buying opportunity? I just don't know. Um, it's um, and, and and that doesn't sound very helpful. But um, you know, I think there are reasons to believe that we'll probably see a bounce at some point in time. And uh, this, is, this is where the whole trading aspect comes in. Um, and that's why I said to you earlier, if you take a portion of it and you've got the money and you've got the ability, you've got the ability to swing, as they say, yeah. then, um, you know, I think you can afford to, um, to, 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 to start actually look at, look at, at trading opportunities. Yeah. Okay. Um, Chris, this, is, this program is called Talking with Traders. So... But having said that, I mean, I do get investors and analysts and various different people on the show. But being in markets all your life, I'm sure you, you've dabbled a bit with a bit of trading here and there. We all kind of have that bug that bites us from time to time. So I want to ask you about your best and worst, let's call them trades or maybe their investments of, of your career. I'm interested to know what those are. Yeah, I think the very first thing I looked at in 1982 when I arrived, I was told about this wonderful stock called Botswana RST, Botrest, copper, copper stock. Mm -hmm. So I bought some of these things and it was unadulterated rubbish. Um, it, about six years later, I think I, I got out with, with what I paid for it. Um, in 1988, the, the, the market started moving. So that is that will probably go down as my worst. Um the best, I mean, there, there are so many. Um, if I, again, go back, going back to the 80s, that was a time when um, the market was, i to be careful what I say here. The market was less, um, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that it was re less regulated, but it was less regulated. Um, there was, I think there was more opportunity mm. to make a quick buck. But companies like SAB, I mean, that was the time to buy SAB. Uh, because they had they hadn't even started on their um, their very long um, acquisition global acquisition program, yeah. and if you if you jumped in there and bought SAB and then sold out in 2016 to AB InBev, wow man it was it was incredible. The same could almost have been said for things like Remgro, for example. So again, 
those, those, those were good ones. One that, I, that really sticks in my mind was a company called Sun International Bupulaswana, Sunbob. And for me, it was an absolute sitter. And, um, you know, I put out report after report after report on this thing. And uh, they just opened the, um, the, the slot machine oriented uh, operation at the Neutgedach Dam, uh, east of Pretoria. And um, I mean, this, the, the, the return on equity was just, was just phenomenal. But nobody could see it. So I think this was trading at about two rands at the time. I said, just fill your boots, fill your flipping boots. And eventually they saw the light, they filled the boots, they bought it. And then, you know, a few years later, of course, the whole thing changed and it um, became one big Sun International. But during that time, it was looking very, very good. But uh, there are too many to, to I think, um, th- those, were, those were ones that kind of stick out. But again, there were just so many, Garth, that mm. um, particularly in the 80s and in the 90s, that um, that um, were, were there. Um, it's it's not so easy. I mean, in in this day and age, you look at let some let's take some of the retail stocks for example. Um, the South African economy was more cyclical. You were you you'd be able to buy the the retailers things like Edcon for example in two thousand and three, as the um, the the interest rate pattern changed, uh, you would jump in there and you just buy it because you knew full well that they would benefit as the interest rate cycle improved, as interest rates came off. But today, nah, this, this isn't actually happening. No one's got any money. The economy is flat. It is on its back, like I've never, ever seen it before. Mm-hmm. So trying to find these co- the correlations um, uh, in a broad sense is, is a lot more difficult uh, I'm thinking with particular reference to, co- to consumer stocks. Look, the commodity stocks are still going to do incredibly well, I think, um, uh, as particularly the, the, the Ukrainian situation takes its toll. Uh, South Africa, unfortunately, uh, may be held um, captive by the problems at Transnet, physically getting the, the goods to market. But nevertheless, I think uh, commodities will still, still uh, look quite good. Um, but mm. I think I think if we're looking at consumer stocks, maybe the banking stock, stuff like that, I think a lot of these will continue to look cheap, even although um, the, um, the, uh, the the economy is probably not going to work for too many people, uh, even in the longer term. Mm-hmm. Okay. Chris, we're running towards the end of our uh, allotted time. So I've just got... T- Two, pretty much two, maybe three more questions that I want to ask you. First of all, um, books. I often ask new guests onto the podcast if they have any favorite trading or investing books. There are just two or three books that you think every investor or every trader should have on their bookshelf. Have you got two or three books you can tell us that you'd recommend? It's a while since I read this one I'm going to mention to you. And I do, I, it's probably out of print now. Um, but it was written by James Dale Davidson and William Rees Mogg. Now, William Rees Mogg is the father of that idiot who's in the um, <laughs> in the, the British government, Jacob Rees Mogg. Jacob Rees Mogg, uh, yeah. <laughs> can't, can't stand him. Anyway, uh, and I don't mind people hearing that. Um, but his father was a brilliant journalist, and the, the name of the book was called The Great Reckoning. And even though it was, it was written in the mid to late 90s, it's still very, very relevant today. Okay. Because it talks about the, you know, the rise of Islam, 
It talks about the impact on markets. It, it talks about so many things that if you give that a read, um, that that in, uh, along with another book they wrote called The Sovereign Individual. Again, it's, um, it, 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 it's you've got to dust it off the shelves. I don't even think these will still be in print. You may have to try and get them on, um, on Amazon. But mm. I, haven't I haven't read an awful lot um, in, in recent times. So I can't, so I'm, I'm, I'm those are good though. I, I, I'm actually going to look those up. Well, I'll see if I can get them as audio books on, okay. on, on Audible because The Great Reckoning, I've not, I've not read that and it sounds interesting. And then last of all, or second last, Chris, is what advice would you give to your younger self? I mean, we have some younger listeners to this podcast. If you were to go back to say your 25, 30-year-old self, what would you give advice to, to that person? I think that's very simple. Um, <laughs> the, the kind of advice I've been given, I never actually um, took that advice myself. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> so I, I, I would listen now to, to what people are saying. You know, you, you would sit there and listen and say, yeah, 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 sure. What do these mm. old toppies know? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's, um, you, you never stop learning. And um, I'm, I'm hopefully man enough to say that I, I, I took a lot of wrong turnings and didn't do the right things uh, as far as taking advice was concerned. And now I think I would. Hmm. Good advice. And if you're a younger person listening to this podcast, listen to your elders, take the advice because they've been there and they've walked those footsteps already so, and they can show you the way. And last thing, Chris, I love your Twitter handle, at Comrade Skorko. What is that all about? Ah, right. Yes, that is my good friend, uh, Bongi Shabalala, with whom I used to work at, um, at uh, ABSA, okay. uh, stop, ABSA Stockbrokers. And she referred to me as Skoko, which in Tsotsitao, um, is, um, it, means, it means the big cheese. It, okay. it actually means, it literally means the, the thick end of the porridge okay. and in, in, in Township Tao. Uh, so uh, I tried to have just Skoko as my handle, but somebody else had got that. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll just be a bit cheeky. We'll have Comrade Skoko. And, and no, no, nobody had got that. So there we go. That's there you it. go. That's and, and that's how we know you nowadays on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and catching up after all these years and hearing about your career and your stories and getting your wisdom and insights. Uh, it's very, very much appreciated. So thanks again for your time. I think the listeners are, are, are due probably for some surprises, I think. I certainly was. I didn't know a lot of these things about your career over the years, which have been very interesting to hear. So thanks again. Appreciate it. And I look forward to catching up with you again. And if I am ever up that way in Scotland, most likely on a whiskey tour or something, then I'll certainly look you up when I'm there. Fantastic. Look forward to it. Good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.